According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Exodus. We are going to finish Exodus today, but it's going to take us four hours to do it, so stay tuned. We have uh, this hour, February 13th, day 44. So we have to cover chapters 32, 33, and 34 this hour. This is the Golden Calf chapter in chapter 32. We've known it's coming up because we've been approaching it in the uh, recent classes. Moses has been up on that mountain getting the, uh, getting the law and talking to the Lord. And the people have been down there, uh, you know, when the, when the cat's away, the mice play, I think is the, the expression. goes back to uh, Exodus 32, actually. <laughs> so here we have it. Let's open with a word of prayer and commit our time for the glory of Jesus Christ humbling our hearts for the authority of Bible doctrine. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness, Father, to bless our time of study. And Father, we do commit ourselves to you for your good pleasure, for your wisdom, for your grace. We thank you for the living and abiding Word of God. And it is it is alive and powerful, and it is uh, it is everything we need, Father. All things pertaining to life and godliness are found right here in your word. So we thank you for it. We ask for your blessing as we study to show ourselves approved. Open our eyes, open our ears, and soften our hearts. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so Exodus 32, the golden calf. Make the text just slightly larger for the back row commandos. All right. During Moses' 40 days sojourn on the mountain, the nation of Israel grew tired of waiting. All right, and we, we know how this goes. We understand Moses was up there for 40 days and 40 nights, and they, they fell into idolatry. It didn't take them long. And, uh, and, Mo, and Aaron led the way, by the way, which is sad. But this is what we're dealing with. And, and the consequences are dire. Uh, it's going to require another 40 days up on the mountain. Moses has to go back up top and uh, deal with that, which we'll see here. So let's take a look at it. Um, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, this man who brought us from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And there's so much wrong with just that verse all by itself. We ought to stop and just take some time with it, but we don't have time to do that. We've got to cover 32, 33, 34 this hour. But you understand, um, it's, it's human impatience with how slow they perceive God is working. That God is not moving fast enough for them, and they're, you know, they've got places to go, things to do. Uh, they've got you know, priorities, and, and God can be very inconvenient when he seems to slow down and, and take too much time according to our standards. And uh, we see this is what's happening here. So this man, it wasn't a man that brought them out of Egypt. It was God that parted the Red Sea. It was God that did this. And they're, they're uh, losing all kinds of perspective. Come make us a God. How dumb is that? <laughs> anything that's man-made is not a God, I'll tell you right now. Anything that, that has a beginning, anything that is made, God is uncaused. He, he's, God, God was never made. God is always the eternal I am. So even the sentence, it's like Satan saying, I will be like the Most High God. Well, too late. 
You know, uh, in order for you to say such a stupid thing, you have to be a created being already. And that's where Satan is. He's a created being who thinks he can somehow become the I am, the self-existent, non-created, uh, created being. But he already is a created being by the time he, uh, he voices that lie out loud. All right. So they, uh, they want Aaron. They assemble around Aaron and say, come, make us a God. And Aaron, I would love to read verse two and have Aaron say, forget it. We can't do this. That's idolatry. That's wrong. And I would love for Aaron to rebuke the people. Instead, Aaron goes along and agrees with it. And so he he takes the leadership of it and tells them how it's going to happen. Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. And all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And again, I don't care how big it is, how glorious it is, how much gold they poured into it, it can't be a God, because God's the self-existent one that created the gold in the first place. And uh, of course, we understand that. So when Aaron saw this, he built an altar. And uh, before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. All right, well, that gets us down through the first six verses on this. And the idea of having a morning sacrifice, the idea of having a morning feast, when we realize, you know what else is going on? That, that very morning that, uh, that they did this, manna showed up. God is faithfully providing for them manna day by day by day. And we, we had the introduction to manna back in chapter 16. And yet they're still committing idolatry. They're still uh, committing the, the rampant fornication that goes with this kind of... Uh, uh, kind of religious service. Let's get some details on this with the notes on the left. So they get tired of waiting. They assume that Moses is dead and are making light of his humanity. We don't know what's happened to this man Moses. And uh, they ask Aaron to make a god for them to lead them into the promised land. As if somehow, you know, Moses got him halfway, got him out of Egypt, but now they need a better god to, uh, to uh, fulfill the promises that that other god had made to them, taking them into the promised land. So Aaron takes the leadership in this idolatrous rebellion. Notice they didn't say what kind of God, and he's the one that determined that it was going to be gold. They didn't say what shape it was going to be in. He's the one that determined that it was going to be a calf. Okay, And so the leadership that he exhibits in fashioning this idolatry for them is, uh, is significant. He fashions the gold into an idol. He instructs them in obtaining the necessary gold. Notice he didn't pay for this himself. Most religious leaders that want to, you know, fleece the flock and 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 you know plunder the people uh, in any kind of idolatry situation. So he's he's uh, gathering gold from all the population, and uh, and he's presenting this for Israel's worship, building an altar for the idol, proclaiming a feast to the idol. Interesting. While Moses is up on the mountain, Moses is getting instructions for altars. He's getting instructions for feasts. He's getting instructions for the things that we've we've been looking at in these recent classes. The whole calendar that's laid out there with the different feasts. And uh, of course, the people down below don't know that. They they've yet to to find out what it is that Moses is going to come down with when he comes down off that mountain. So presenting the idol, presenting the feast presiding over their evil activity. They rose up to play. They rose up to play. And they weren't playing Scrabble, I'll tell you that. All right? They rose up to play. And the, the, the idea of playing 
the, the Hebrew tzachak, to laugh, to mock, to play. It's used of children that are playing. It's used of laughter. And it's the basis for the name of Isaac. The Isaac means laughter. Uh, but there's other kinds of playing that are, that are used in the Bible that reference a, a, a husband and wife relationship. It's playing in the, in the sexual dimension. And uh, used in a sexual context in Genesis 26, we pointed that out. This is when the, the, the jig was up and it was clear that Rebecca was not Isaac's sister because he was observed uh, playing with her in a way that brothers and sisters don't do. All right, And so the expression there in Genesis 26, 8, uh, came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah. And that's the verb for playing. The, when, when you caress your wife, that's playing in the Hebrew vocabulary of tzachak. Likewise, uh, in uh, Genesis 39, with uh, uh, Potiphar's wife and Joseph, the, the verb was used there a couple of times, and then here in Exodus 32, 6, they rose up to play. And there are religions that let you do that, in the ancient religions, especially in the, in the ancient world, they were all centered in fertility rites, they were all centered in, in uh, sexual gods and goddesses, and they would reenact the sexual gods and goddesses in their priesthood and in their, uh, in their idolatry. So that's what they're doing. They rose up to play. So the Lord notifies Moses of what's going on. And kind of a little uh, heads up now. Uh, By the way, Moses, when you get down to the bottom of the mountain, you're not going to like what you see. Okay, And God's aware of what's happening there. So let's look at verses 7 through 14. The Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. God is using a phrase here like we always use, when husbands and wives use, you know, do you know what your son did today? And when, uh, when my mother told my father that, it was very clear that she was disowning me in, uh, in the consequences of what I had done, and so dad had to deal with it. And here's the Lord doing the same thing, telling Moses what your people are doing, whom you brought up from, from the land of Egypt. Okay? And it's, uh, it's interesting to see God himself use this kind of expression. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and have said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. This is right on the heels of two occasions where Israel vowed all the Lord has said we will do, where they said they would be obedient, where they had read from that book, where they had had the blood sprinkled on them and they, they were ready to be the covenant nation. And it didn't take 40 days later and they were already abandoning their vow, abandoning their oath before the Lord. And so uh, the Lord, uh, this is what they're doing. They've quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. It doesn't take long at all, okay? And uh, we we need to be aware of this. Verse 9, so the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. Behold, they're an obstinate people. So let me alone that my anger may burn against them that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. And so the final thing that he tells Moses in this is that, and and this is not a true statement that the Lord's making, by the way, but he is testing Moses in this. As God said, I'm going to blast these people to smithereens and start over with you. Okay, And it's a humility test for Moses, and Moses is going to pass this time. There'll be a future occasion where he doesn't pass, but on this occasion he passes. So he's offering to destroy the covenant nation. Now this, by the way, 
This is good that we're taking the time to walk through this because we've got to recognize this. If God was not a faithful God who keeps his covenant, then we would be, we'd be cheering him on at this point saying, yeah, Lord, go blast these people. Okay? But he actually can't do that because of previous promises that he made with Abraham. And then if he starts over with Moses, then, then, then he's going to start over with a single tribe. Moses can't represent all 12 tribes. Moses is just one guy from one tribe. So to blast these people to smithereens and start over with Moses would mean God is unfaithful to the other 11 tribes, right? Including Judah, who he's already decreed is where the, the line of Christ is coming through. So this is really an empty threat, but it's used for a reason. God's not just you know, spouting an empty threat for no reason. He's actually making a statement saying, stand back, let me alone so that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them and I will make of you a great nation. He's basically telling Moses, stand back and let me do this, right? He's not lying. I want to be clear on that. He's making a statement of an intention, testing what Moses is going to do when Moses responds. And Moses responds properly. Okay? It's like when he makes his intention known when he tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. God abhors human sacrifice. God was not really intending for, for Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, but he made that statement to test Abraham's faith. Similar application here. All right, Jesus will do the same thing, by the way, with his disciples. When uh, he says, where are we going to get food to feed this many people? And his disciples start coming up with you know, cost estimates on what it's gonna, you know, how much is it going to cost to feed all the, you know, this crowd. And Jesus already knew what he was going to do. He knew he was going to multiply the loaves and fish. He knew the miracle was coming. But he made the statement he made to test the people that were learning from him. So, in the notes on the left-hand panel there, the Lord's notifying Moses of what's going on at the bottom of the mountain. He orders Moses to descend immediately and observe the evil for himself. Also warns Moses against getting too close because he intends to blast Israel and build a nation out of Moses. And the great thing about Moses' response is Moses tells God what he cannot do. It takes a mature prayer life to tell God what, you cannot, what God cannot do. And he's telling God what he cannot do, not based on Moses' authority. He's not putting his foot down and saying, God, I'm Moses, you have to listen to me. He's actually repeating God's own promises back to God. And we're, we're free to do the same thing. Let's read Moses' words here in 11 through 13. Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt? So he's contradicting that statement God had made a few verses back. It's your people, you brought them out of the land of Egypt with great power and mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians speak, saying with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? You know, if you do this, Lord, then you're giving the adversary grounds for accusations. Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. If you're going to give the adversary an opportunity for reproach, then you're going to be guilty of what you've commanded us not to do. Remember, and Moses isn't done. He says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. By specifically putting those names up there, he's reminding the Lord that he is indeed the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. That he is indeed the covenant God who has made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Your servants to whom you swore by yourself. You swore an oath. The God who cannot lie swore an oath. This people must abide forever. You cannot destroy them. 
You said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and all this land of which I have spoken I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And Moses is absolutely right about this. God cannot destroy Israel and start over with Moses. That would obliterate 11 twelfths of the tribes just right there in one fell swoop. And, and it would destroy the, the covenant promise of the, of the seed of the woman coming through Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Then the promise of Shiloh is the promise of Jesus Christ. And if, if God goes through with this threat, none of us get saved. So Moses is absolutely correct. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. And I love the fact that that expression is used there. And again, we, we, we identify God's omniscience and he knew all this ahead of time. And the, the expression to change his mind is what we call an anthropopathism. It's assigning a human characteristic to God's own thought process. But be that as it may, it is a reflection. It is an accurate anthropopathism, right? It accurately portrays the fact that the Lord's thinking was modified by Moses' prayer, by Moses' uh, rebuke in this, uh, in this way. So the Lord changed his mind. Nacham is the Hebrew verb there, to be sorry, to console oneself, repent, regret, comfort, be comforted. We know that God is not a man that he should repent. We have verses that tell us that. So we reconcile these passages together. We harmonize them in a marvelous way that, uh, that applies the truth of each passage in the context in which it's found. God is not a man. He does not repent as men repent. But sometimes the repentance language is used to make clear what's happening here. Obviously in anthropopathism, a figure of speech using human terms to describe divine activity, he does not change his mind. So if you want those other verses, you can look those up. Numbers 23, 19, 1 Samuel 15, 29. There's other occurrences. We actually dealt with this previously with, with Noah and the flood. When God said, I regret that I have made man upon the earth. And you can have regrets, even with omniscience, you can still have regrets when, uh, when you're observing the sin and the evil that you're observing as it unfolds. And so we see that there. There's going to be other occasions coming up in the Judges cycle, in Judges chapter 2, and then making Saul king of Israel. He says, I regret that I made Saul king of Israel. And uh, likewise, when he's ready to destroy Jerusalem, and, and David confesses right there at the threshing floor. So good examples of that, repeated examples of that. God's activity in verse 14 is a direct response to Moses' prayer in verse 12. Pay attention. We're going to see that again and again and again. This was a, a big issue in Philippians and in Colossians and other places What we, we saw whereby it's the prayer life of the believer that triggers the action that God has been waiting to, to manifest. And that's, uh, that's, that's vital. He's designed this plan to function that way, that he's waiting for us to pray and before he can take certain actions in, in different realms of ministry that we're involved in. The sequence is there for a reason. All right, then we get past verse 14. Moses obeyed the Lord's command to descend immediately. He was filled with wrath by what he observed. I don't know why he was so shocked. He's already had a great victory here. And, and this, it serves as another warning. Just because you've had a great victory, don't get prideful because you can be followed by a tremendous defeat just a split second later. And uh, that's what we're going to see here. Moses' great victory in praying to the Lord and then his temper tantrum as he comes down the mountain and he sees the, uh, the evil for what it is. So Moses turned and went down from the mountain and the two tablets, the testimony in his hand, tablets which were written on both sides, written on one side and the other, as God did this, 
Tablets were God's work. The writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. I wonder what his handwriting looked like. I mean, it had to have been perfect, okay? And, and on both sides of the tablet, it wasn't sloppy. It wasn't like, you know, something I would have scribbled on there. And his own finger carving on the stones. Boy, to be the archaeologist to find those, how would they, wouldn't that be something? Well, good luck with that because he's smashing these tablets right now and, and uh, no archaeologist is ever going to find them. So, um, Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, and he said to Moses, there's a sound of war in the camp. And Moses knew better, okay, because he had the briefing from the Lord that Joshua didn't get. He said, no, it's not the sound of a cry of triumph, or it's the sound of defeat. It's the sound of singing, I hear. Because remember, this massive orgy is going on down there, and they're, they're parting it up, they're getting drunk, they're singing, they're fornicating, and everything else that's going on. So as soon as Moses came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger burned. He threw the tablets down from his hands, shattered them at the foot of the mountain, took the calf which they had made, burned it with fire, ground it to powder, scattered it over the surface of the water, and made the sons of Israel drink it. Can you imagine? I don't know that he made them drink every last bit of it, but he did make every last one of them drink. I think that's curious. So Joshua misunderstood the sounds he was hearing from a distance, but Moses knew the reality. That makes me think about some things too. The older man, the younger man, the better perspective. But I can't give Moses too much credit. God clued him in. God told him what was happening. So he would have been just as, just as clueless as Joshua in, uh, in that. So Moses' anger burned and he administered immediate justice. Notice everything that he does here, he does from his own Thought process. The Lord didn't tell him to grind it up and burn and make him drink it. And, and it just this seems to be Moses' idea on this uh, on this consequence, making them drink the powder that the golden calf was ground into. He then challenged any faithful believers to step forward. I mean, is there anybody here that is not uh, committing fornication? I think Aaron's excuse here is so pathetic as well. <laughs> oh, it's crazy. All right. Man, I still got two more chapters to go. Let's, uh, they're, they're shorter chapters than this one. This is, this is one I want to spend more time with. So Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? I mean, I, I mean what did they do? Did they, did they force you into this? Did they hold your wife captive? I, I mean, is it, was this against your will? It's, it's like when, when uh, Paul tells you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It's just unthinkable to think that you would do this of your own free will. Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself, they are prone to evil. They said to me, Make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, this man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Again, repeating their words word for word. Very scornful, very dismissive. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So when they gave it to me, I threw it into the fire, and this, this calf just popped right out. It's just amazing, a miracle. I threw the gold in, and this calf popped out. <coughs> I mean, really? I mean, my brother's told me some whoppers over the years, but nothing like this. Are you kidding me? All right. Actually, no, I'm, I can't think of a, a single untrue statement my brother's ever told me at the moment. That's kind of sad. I threw my brother under the bus just now. and That's, that's horrible. I repent. I apologize. <clears throat> All right. Yeah, I threw the golden in the fire and out came this calf. Okay. 
which is just so ludicrous. What have we been studying? When, when Moses was up on the mountain, God was telling him, I'm going to pour my spirit of craftsmanship into these men, and they're going to be the greatest craftsmen this planet has ever seen. And they're going to be skillful with their hands to mold gold and silver and bronze and, and to work, work with wood. And he's got all of these instructions for building the tabernacle. And, and to, in order for a golden calf to come out, it takes the creativity of a human being to shape that gold. And... Uh, yeah, this is just a stupid, lame excuse here. All right. So when Moses saw the people were out of control, Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies. I mean, that, like I say, this orgy is just un- uncontrolled. It's, it's horrible. And Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. Right? So there's at least that to their credit. He said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, every man of you put his sword upon his thigh, go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp, kill every man his brother, every man his friend, every man his neighbor. And so here comes the the decimation, if you will. 3,000 men of the people fell that day. 3,000. So yeah, Moses is challenging any faithful believers to step forward, ordering execution against the out-of-control mob. All right, God's judicial sentence. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. It's not Moses' idea. It's God's instructions to uh, end this orgy with the, with the sword. And yeah, the lame excuses, verses 21 through 24, is horrible. All right, now it's confession time. Moses is going to have to intercede. Starting in verse 30. Moses says to the people, you yourselves have committed great sin, now I'm going up to the Lord, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Although there was really no instructions up to this point, and there's nothing in Leviticus that's going to help. What what are you going to do with a a national golden calf idolatry and and fornication fast? There's, There's nothing in Leviticus that covers that. Nothing on the mountain Moses ever received covers this. It's like a young pastor that said, my seminary never covered this, Lord, what do I do? (laughs) You know, his first day in the pulpit. So he goes back up the mountain, returns to the Lord, and he starts confessing. He starts confessing the sins. And, uh, and, you know, they're rebellious. Moses knows that. God knows that. What needs to happen next? So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed great sin. They've made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book, which you have written. Wow. There's a confession and a willingness to lose his own salvation, to be, to be blotted out of the... I take this to be the Lamb's Book of Life that we learn about elsewhere in the Bible. <clears throat> but go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. So the answer that comes... Uh, let's see, ver, the Lord's... I missed verse 33. Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. And so we have judgment that happens there. Moses is confessing the sins of Israel. He's willing to suffer spiritual death on behalf of Israel. You know, I, I, can, I can only think of two. I can think of this example. I can think of Paul. The Apostle Paul was willing to be counted accursed if it would mean the redemption of the Jewish people. And, and those are the only two I can think of that would voluntarily just throw away their eternal life and, and spend eternity 
uh, in the lake of fire on, behalf, on a sacrificial love application there in that way. All right. Note the Lord answers that only the guilty will bear the guilt. Only the guilty are guilty. And, uh, and he's the one that has absolute custodial uh, concern in his book of life. And, and I believe, my personal f- uh, thought on this, is that God writes every name in that book of life. Every human being that ever will live, ever has lived. And then when they die without getting saved is when he blots that name out. Okay? Because he's not willing for any to perish. So every name is in there to start with. And then they live their lives and rejecting the gospel, rejecting eternal life. And the day they depart without eternal life is when he blots that name out and he sends them to hell in the process there. And there, if you want more on that, Revelation 3, 13, 17, uh, 20, and 21, a whole bunch of chapters in Revelation describe the Lamb's Book of Life. Uh, some doubt that Moses could have known about the Lamb's Book of Life, but David obviously did. He talks about it in Psalm 69, 28. Daniel knows about it in Daniel 12, 1. So there were prophets before the book of Revelation was written who knew about the Lamb's Book of Life, and I have no reason to doubt that, that Moses knew about it as well. So the Lord declared that Israel will have to face long-term divine discipline for the rebellion with the golden calf. And this is what happens. There can be forgiveness today based on uh, Moses' intercession, but with that forgiveness comes ongoing disciplinary circumstances. And, and uh, rebound, doctrine of rebound, confession of sin, 1 John 1.9, does not mean uh, everything is, is, is removed and, and you can just move on with no more consequences. There will sometimes be lifelong consequences related to the things that we've been doing in our carnality. All right, well, that gets us then to chapter 33. And uh, it's going to have to go back up. All right, so the Lord spoke to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. These first six verses are slightly... uh, They're... It's, it's an awkward placement in the canon, all right? Because it's time to go, but you can't go yet. So there's six verses here with instructions to, all right, get out of here, go on up to Canaan. But then we have the passage that describes the fact that, no, um, you're going to spend 40 more days on this mountain. When you do go up, I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanite, Amorite, Hittite, Perizzite, Hivite, Jebusite. Have we memorized this list of ites yet? Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst. Um, yes, I will not go up in your midst because you are an obstinate people and I might destroy you on the way. <laughs> so go ahead, conquer the land yourself. I'm not going with you. I'll, I'll get, I'm so fed up with you, I'll probably kill you before we get halfway to Kadesh Barnea. So when the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning and none of them put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the sons of Israel, you are an obstinate people. Well, I mean... It's a true statement. They are an obstinate people. If, if a rebuke from the Word of God crushes you, don't blame the Word of God. Realize, you know what? This rebuke is appropriate. I need to repent. I need to change what I'm doing. All right. So the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Yeah. All right, so you have the notes there on the left. And the message does accomplish its purpose, the people's mental attitude, repentance, and sorrow on the part of Israel and the issues there. All right. It has another benefit. 
It accelerates Moses' prayer life. <laughs> and there is something fun to think about, that uh, oftentimes God organizes the circumstances, um, perhaps in a, in, a, in a family, in a marriage, in a, in a local church, in a nation. God organizes the circumstances such as they are that God's people all of a sudden wake up and say, you know what, I'm not praying like I should be. I need to pray more. Okay? I need to pray more for my kids. I need to pray for more for my, my wife. I need to pray more for my flock. I need to pray more for my nation. And these things are not fun to watch. But God has organized the circumstances such as they are to, uh, to kickstart our prayer life. And so we have uh, here in chapter 33, we have Moses in verses 7 through 17. It's kind of, so let's take a look at this as well. Uh, verses 1 through 6, verses 7 and following, some of these are patchwork narratives that are getting woven into the framework of the, of the final text, the final canonical version of, of Exodus. They were probably written at different times and then patchworked in here. That's something we talked about, the patchwork structure of Genesis when we were dealing with those earlier chapters. So here's uh, something else Moses used to do. Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And what this causes confusion with, of course, is that the tabernacle is also called the tent of meeting. This tent we're looking at in this verse is not the tabernacle. It hasn't been built yet. Okay? He has the instructions, he has the blueprints. They're going to build it in the upcoming chapters. All right? But here in this chapter, the only, th- the only tent that's called the tent of meeting is where Moses goes out and talks to God. And that's what's being described here. And it was something that he would pitch outside the camp and in view of everybody who could watch it. So it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. It's like, oh, there goes Moses again. Okay, He's going to go out there and talk to God. And whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak to Moses. So all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent. All the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. And so this is kind of how the process went for this short period of time until such time as the tabernacle itself was built. It took him about a year, by the way, to build this tabernacle. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, would not depart from the tent. So that was his duty station. And he would, he'd be posted there from his youth. He was, he was Moses' attendant from his youth. So those verses are interesting getting us through 7 through 11. And with the jump-started prayer life, Moses says to the Lord, you know, I think this is curious too. So Moses goes out to the tent, he's inside the tent, and then the, the pillar of cloud that, that they were using for their guidance system, well, I don't know if the whole pillar moved over, kind of sounds like it, or maybe just a strand of cloud moved over, and then it would park itself right there in front of the tent. Which is kind of a neat way of telling Moses, you're not leaving Bible class early. Okay, you're in that tent because the cloud is blocking the door, right? And so Moses is inside there and and I think maybe through a parted flap of the tent or what have you, and and the cloud is right there and they're talking. And Moses is getting all the instructions. And then when the pillar of cloud would revert back to wherever it was, then uh, then Moses would be free to to leave the tent and uh, Joshua would take up his duty station. Anyway, it ramps up his prayer life. Moses says to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have made you, uh, have made known, I'm sorry, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. All right. 
know why my eyes aren't locking in well here today. So, Moses says, Now therefore I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider too, this nation is your people. These verses are intriguing also to me, because I think I've explained this in similar terms. It's one thing to know about God, but it's something else to know God. To know Him personally, to know His ways, to know His thinking, to know His attitude. Moses is hoping to have a greater intimacy with the Lord than he's ever had before. Beyond just His name and beyond uh, facts about Him. He wants to know Him and to know His ways, to have an intimacy with God in a greater way so that He'll be a more effective leader of these people. And then consider too, this nation is your people. So the Lord tells Moses, my presence shall go with you, I will give you rest. And, and really, Moses is ready to quit if God doesn't make good on this. So he says to him, if your presence does not go with us, don't lead us up from here. How can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? And, and Moses is correct exactly about that. That's what sets Israel apart. They're, they're the chosen people, and it's not because they're awesome, or they're numerous, or they're great, or they're faithful, or they're wonderful. It has nothing to do with them. It has to do with God himself and his faithfulness to make good on his covenant promises. That's what sets them apart. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight. I, will know, I have known you by name. So Moses said, I pray you show me your glory. And he gets a little glimpse here. He gets a glimpse of the, of the backside. Let me make sure I'm not losing my, uh, my place on this. So these are the notes in your outline under point two and the subpoints there, A through D. Moses' routine was to communicate with the Lord face to face in the tent of meeting outside the camp. Moses was not satisfied with the Lord going ahead to prepare the way. He wants the Lord with him. In, in other words, a closer, a closer relationship. The Lord answered Moses that he would be with him and provided him with the faith rest to accept it. I like that. Moses celebrates God's answer to prayer and anticipates the unique position of Israel in contrast with the surrounding Gentile nations. And that is so true. We cannot lose that focus. All too frequently, I think, I mentioned this Thursday night, all too frequently we get wrapped up in our own subjectivity as church-age saints. And we, we, we celebrate what we have in Christ, the, the marvelous position as, as royal family of God, as baptized in the union with Christ, seated in the heavenly places in Christ. All of our glories as Christians, as church-age believers, we get wrapped up in that and we look back to Israel and we see something that compared to us really has no glory. Something compared to us is really inferior and, and not desirable. We wouldn't trade us for them any day of the week. And, and when we do that, we forget we shouldn't be comparing them to us. We should be comparing them to everybody else that wasn't them in the Old Testament. We should be comparing Israel to all the Gentile nations for Old Testament history. The Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, and, and everybody. Everybody that was not the nation of Israel. Because none of those Gentile nations had the Shekinah glory dwelling in their midst. They didn't have a high priest like Aaron. They didn't have a prophet like Moses. They didn't have written scriptures. As far as we know, there was no Gentile scriptures ever in the Old Testament era. All right. So in contrast to the surrounding Gentile nations, that's the contrast. The Father is pleased to provide according to what Moses asked and indeed beyond. Beyond. 
what Moses could ask or think. Then the request to behold the glory, you know, how can a man see God and live? How can you come face to face with the glory? You can't. But in a, in a marvelous condescension here, there'll be, you'll get to pass by. So Moses said, I pray, show me your glory. He said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face. No man can see me and laugh. And keep in mind, this is, sometimes we think of this as the, the Lord Jesus Christ. I actually think this is the, this is the Father at this point speaking to, uh, speaking to Moses. It's not always clear when, when Yahweh, if we're talking about the Father or the Son. No one sees the Father at any time, but the Son is the one that is manifest, that we can behold His glory. So the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. We're going to say some more on this, I think, on the Shekinah glory itself. The word Shekinah is not in the Bible, but it is a, it's an Aramaic term that comes from the Jewish Targums and, and the, uh, the theological understanding of what this, this pillar is, what this cloud is. How is it when God's glory is localized in a, in a, in a visible way, what, what, what do we call that? They called it Shekinah. Okay? And that's what would abide, and it would abide above the mercy seat. It, it, it was different from the mercy seat. Okay? And so what I think we see there is a picture of the Father and the Son. That the Son is the mercy seat. Jesus Christ is the mercy seat. It's the mercy seat that has the blood applied to it. The Shekinah is above the mercy seat as the Father who's above the Son. Okay? So put a gun to my head and, and force me to tell you what I believe uh, on the Shekinah. I think the Shekinah is patrological rather than Christological, which makes the Shekinah different from the, the cloud and the fire that's leading them on a daily basis here. Anyway, so stay tuned for that. I don't know how much of that will end up in the walkthrough or how much of that's going to take, um, going to take further work in, uh, in Leviticus. All right. So the Lord says, Behold, there's a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. It'll come about while my glory is passing by. I will put you in the cleft of the rock. How many of our hymns speak to this, right? He hides us in the cleft of the rock. Well, the reason for hiding there is not for physical protection necessarily. It's really it's to keep him physically alive while a glimpse of his glory passes by. And uh, while my glory is passing by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And this is, you know, when, when Jesus laid aside his privileges, there's a reason for that. He couldn't just be born of a manger with all of his divine glory. It would have just killed everybody in the in the in the area. But here's this glory passing by and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And I will take my hand away. So after that moment, he can see the decreasing, he can see the, the, the passing, the backside of, of God's glory after he's already passed by. I'll take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And so what a condescension, what a divine provision allowing Moses to observe what humanity cannot observe. Even, uh, even just the backside of it. So the Father is pleased to reveal Himself through His works and the proclamation of His name and the manifestation of His grace. The Father cannot be personally viewed except through the personal view of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. We understand that, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
That's John 1.14. We have uh, Hebrews. He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. And so when you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father, because we can't see the Father, not yet. I believe in the resurrection we will. I believe that we will be like Christ and we'll be face to face with the Father as Christ is face to face with the Father. But that takes the, that's after the millennium, that's after the new heavens and new earth, that's in the fullness of time when we will see Him as He is. Anyway, if you want some more on that, you've got uh, John 1, John 12, John 14, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, all these expressions. You cannot see the Father. The Father does permit Moses to observe a veiled backside view of himself. And uh, however, however we want to take this metaphor, it is a backside metaphor in, in, in the sense of his glory has passed by and the hand is removed and, uh, and things there. All right, chapter 34 then. Moses is required to cut out his own tablets. Okay? You break it, you buy it, right? You, 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 you smash these things. God says, I wrote the first ones. You're doing, the, you're doing these. Moses is required to cut his own tablets out for the replacement of the, the ones that he smashed. And so, consequences for Moses in the, uh, the temper tantrum that he threw just there. All right, so cut out for yourselves two stone tablets like the former ones. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you shattered. So be ready by morning and come up to the morning to Mount Sinai. Present yourself there on top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Uh, Joshua had a certain closer aspect than anybody else, but still, it was Moses by himself. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of that mountain. So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones, rose up early, went up to the mountain, took two stone tablets in his hand, and he's got to do this again, 40 more days. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him. He called upon the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. This is a great verse. This is Gary Williams' favorite verse right here. He, he loved this. He memorized it. He would recite it. Absolutely loved it. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and great. So that's Yahweh, that's Yahweh Elohim. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the grandchildren to the third and to the fourth generation. Okay? And by the way, that reference to thousands, I think in context, applies to generations, to the thousandth generation. We see that in other passages as well. So, Moses required to ascend for another period of 40 days and 40 nights. We get that down later in the chapter, verses 27 and 28. And um, the Lord is pronouncing His own majesty, prompting Moses to plead on behalf of Israel once again. You know, so God is doing, is, is God trumpeting His own glory? Yes, God's trumpeting His own glory. God is worthy of trumpeting his own glory. He is announcing his name, he's announcing his glory, and uh, Moses is responding properly. Pronounces his own majesty, which prompts Moses to plead on behalf of Israel once again. Moses made haste to bow low and worship. If now I found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though these people are so obstinate and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your own possession. So all you can do is just throw yourself on the mercy of God. They don't, they don't deserve it. They don't earn it. No one can. 
I mean, God would be absolutely righteous to blast these people to smithereens. But then he, God himself would have the consequences of not making good on his promises, right? And God knew this day was coming when he made those promises. So it's not a surprise to him. Not at all. All right. So God said, behold, I'm going to make a covenant before all your people. I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth nor among any of the nations. And all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I'm going to perform with you. And actually for the, the, the time of their wanderings, for the time that moving forward, the works that he does are going to be piled on top of the, the work he's already done. When he delivered them out of Egypt, the plagues that he did in Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea, he's already done enough to cause the nations to tremble. He says now he's really going to lay it on. Now he's going to be working in a mighty way, as if he already hasn't been. And this covenant now that they're going to enter into, it's going to be a fearsome covenant of works. This, this mosaic covenant of, if you obey me, I bless you. If you disobey me, I curse you. A very ferocious works-based covenant. Conditional covenant. Totally different from the Abrahamic covenant. Remember, Abrahamic covenant was unconditional, based upon the promise of I will. Mosaic covenant is fully conditional, based upon if you do this, then I'll do that. If you do that, then I'll do this. Okay? And this Mosaic Covenant is a horrendous thing. This Mosaic Law that nobody could keep. Well, they're going to get it. They're going to get it for all these years. They're going to be under law until, uh, until Jesus comes and, and redeems those that are under the law. Alright, so be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I'm going to drive out. Here's our, it, our ites list again. The Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, Perizzite, Hivite, Jebusite. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going or it will become a snare in your midst. If they're going to be the covenant nation with the Lord, they cannot be having additional covenants on the side. No side deals. No, uh, no uh, adultery against the Lord God. He is their husband. Their covenant is with Him. Because otherwise they're going to be a snare. You're to tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their ashram. That temper tantrum Moses just had, you, you guys do that with all of the idols you, you, uh, you, you encounter in the promised land, including the ashram, these totem pole, um, you know, phallic tree symbols that they would worship around. Okay? You shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. This marvelous chapter that gives us the marvelous name of Jealous. Alright? He is a jealous God. So much so that you can call Him that. That's His name. Otherwise you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods. Someone might invite you to eat of their sacrifice. You might take some of his daughters for your sons and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. This idiom, play the harlot. I think the new, uh, the updated New American Standard has changed it to play the prostitute instead of playing the harlot. And to me that's Silly, they should have just left it alone. Nothing wrong with play the harlot. Cause your sons also to prostitute themselves. Okay, prostitute themselves is how they've redone that in the new version. I don't know. I have it. I look at it every now and then, but I'm, I'm underwhelmed by the, 
the 2020 version of the New American Standard Bible. I think I'm going to stick with the 95 update, at least till the rapture, maybe longer. We'll see. We'll see what happens after that. But playing the harlot, prostituting yourself. It's, it's a verb of fornication, but it's a verb of idolatry at the same time. Okay? And this is how God counts it when you're, when you're uh, worshiping other gods. He counts that as sexual unfaithfulness because you should be only worshiping Him. That's why it's called harlotry or fornication. I like fornication. I like the, the word fornication. It's a good Old English word that um, I think we need to use more often because it just drives the point home and it's not generally used in, in modern speech. All right. I'm going to get in trouble. I said I like the word. Someone's going to clip that little thing out and say, ooh, Pastor Bob likes fornication. <laughs> All right, I've got seven minutes. Let's wrap this up. <laughs> so, uh, there's going to be more power. They have to guard themselves from idolatry. His name is jealous. The verb kana. And this is, it, it, it's curious. I talked about the kana, kana conundrum uh, a few months ago because we have kana that means to beget or to acquire. When I have acquired a son and the Lord has acquired me and kana uh, for jealous. And sometimes we get jealous because we don't acquire what we think we need to acquire. And so sometimes when we don't kana, we kana. And um, anyway, it's a play on words in the Hebrew. It's hilarious in the Hebrew. And uh, it's, it's lost on most of us. All right. So the Lord reviewed some of his previously revealed instructions, verses 18 through 26. Does it seem redundant? Does it seem repetitive? Does it seem tedious when God says what he's already said before? Well, but it's necessary, all right? And it's necessary to give certain messages again and again and again so that it drives the point home. And really, verses 18 through 26 is uh, repetitive from things that have been taught earlier. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, Every offspring of the womb you shall redeem with a lamb. You shall work for six days. On the seventh day you shall rest. He's going to highlight that again and again. And it becomes vital, especially when they start engaging in the tabernacle construction project. That tabernacle construction project takes them nearly a year, and but it's important for them that they're only working six days a week. They've got to stop and have that rest every Sabbath. Three times a year your males are to appear before me. You know, God is everywhere, but He's here especially, and you're going to come here three times a year. That's the, that's the imperative for every adult Jewish male has to stand before the Lord three times a year. Don't use leaven. First fruits, Passover, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Somebody sent me a link, and I, I, I still need to read that, but apparently there's, there's good information there on the, uh, the young goat and the mother's milk, connected to the pagan practices of the nations around them and what they were doing. Totally lost on us in the 21st century, but it's in the Bible and we better learn from it. All right, then 27 and following. Although the Lord did make Moses cut out the tablets himself, the Lord once again did the handwriting, the fingering, uh, fingerprint writing on the second set of tablets, listed here, listed in, uh, in Deuteronomy as well. All right, finally then, Moses' custom of meeting the Lord face to face will continue, but now Moses will have to wear a veil in the presence of his fellow Israelites. So we have the shining face details here. 
It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. I kind of get the idea this wouldn't have happened if, it, if he'd only been up there for the first 40 days. But that second set of 40 days was uh, evidently too much proximity to this glory and it has lifelong you know, radioactive effects on, uh, on Moses. He's now uh, glory sensitive. And uh, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he was speaking with him. I mean, how do you know? If you don't look in a mirror, you don't know. Your face is glowing. And when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. Uh, Yeah, me too. Okay. And Moses called to them and Aaron and the rulers of the congregation returned to him and Moses spoke to them. So afterwards they came near as he commanded them to do everything. The Lord spoke to him on the mount. He said, they've got a, a whole bunch of instructions now. And uh, they got, they've got a tabernacle to build. They've got a bunch of work to do. Okay. And when Moses had finished speaking, he put a veil over his face. Now I get this. This is not a, this is not a, a, a Fauci face mask. This is, this is uh, needed because of the glory and the effects and the intimidation uh, on the part of the Jewish people. Also the disappointment that would come as that would start to fade in between the speaking sessions. It would recharge when Moses would go back and speak again, but then it would fade uh, the longer that he was away from the presence of the Lord. So the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, the skin of Moses' face shone, so he would replace the veil over his face until he went to speak with him. Okay, so wearing a veil for 40 years. How... how uh, how does that go? I guess it's better than Isaiah who had to go naked for, for the what was it, three years that he went naked or whatever that time frame was. God asked his prophets to do an awful lot. Alright, Moses' custom of meeting the Lord face to face will continue but now Moses will have to wear a veil in the presence of his fellow Israelites. We have the details here and we have the commentary on this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The ministry of death is what Paul called Mosaic Law in letters engraved on stones that came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be with even more glory? You and I as church-age believers have a greater glory than, than Moses had in, uh, even with the veil operations there. Church-age believers today have the privilege of face-to-face unveiled worship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Amen? This is why we're here today. This is why we're under the teaching of the Word of God. With unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We get to see the Lord today. And we get to see the Lord today as we are being transformed into His image. So that every time we look at that spiritual mirror, we see less and less of us and we see more and more of Him every day as we grow in His Word. Being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Father, I thank You for this message. I thank You for these chapters. I thank You for the privilege we have as church-age believers. And I thank You for the transformation that takes place. You were not content merely to save us, Father. You desire all men to be saved, but also to come to the knowledge of the truth. And Father, in our stewardship, there is a lot of knowledge. There's a lot of, um, of, of Bible passages to study. The Hebrew canon, the Greek canon, we have been given more than any stewardship has ever been given in the history of the world. And that's not to boast, that's not to be prideful, it's to be humble, Father, because to whom much is given shall much be required. 
you expect of us, Father, the, the high standard. And uh, we want to live up to that standard by your grace and by your glory. So we give you the praise and glory. We thank you, Father. We look forward to uh, the rest of this day with three more messages on the way. And just thank you for being faithful. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.